Well, uh, it's been a while, but we're still in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're in chapter 10 at verse 28. So if you turn there, I'm actually going to read it for us because uh, it's been a little while. So I just wanted to refresh our memory. So I'm going to back up just a little bit, and I'm going to give us context. I'm going to read the story of the rich young ruler. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And then here's where we pick up where we're going to be picking up today. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Son who came... Uh, into this world, Lord God, and walked among us. He ate among us and spoke among us and lived among us. And he equipped witnesses to tell us just how marvelous and how frightening he is. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us because we know um, in our own hearts, sometimes we pull back, sometimes we hold ourselves back because what he says and what he does is frightening. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us a holy boldness this morning, that you would fill us with hope, that you would fill us with the strength of the Holy Spirit to comprehend with our hearts and our minds the truth that is Jesus Christ, that we would not only follow him, but that we would live like him. And we pray in his name, and amen. Now, Mark appears to regard chapter 10, verse 17 through 31, as a single unit expressing the essence of Jesus' teaching concerning entrance into the kingdom of heaven. 
This is what this whole section has been about. How do we get into the kingdom of heaven? This section occupies a crucial position in the Markan outline. It follows the story of Christ and the children, where entrance into the kingdom of heaven is defined as a gift, a free gift, willingly given to those who acknowledge their helplessness like children. It concludes here with the third prophecy of the Passion which sharpens the demand to follow Jesus on the way to the cross. If you want into the kingdom of heaven, it's something that you cannot attain. It is something that you are given. And in order to receive it, in order to have it delivered over to you, there is something that you first must deliver over to God. It costs you something. And, and what Jesus wants us all to understand is, here, come. Come and follow me, and I will show you what it costs. I will show you what you have to deliver over if you want the kingdom of heaven delivered over to you. The call to self-denial in order to follow Jesus, sounded earlier in chapters 8 and 9, is repeated here in Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, Give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Deliver over everything that you love, everything that you cherish, everything that you hold sacrosanct. Deliver it over. And he, the Lord God, will deliver over to you eternal life. He, he, he will deliver over to you divinity. He will deliver over to you oneness with the living God. And all it costs is everything you've got. This provides the setting for a startling proclamation. Jesus has several times already described exactly what's going to happen to him, but in this, the third major um, prophecy of his passion, he gives very specific details that are shocking. And what do we have? We we have people who are already terrified. He's already, to to a certain extent, brought them to a point of despair. Who can be saved, they ask him. Now, now why would Jesus take these beloved followers and bring them to a point of doubt and, and, and almost despair? Jesus, who? Who can be saved? And, and what does Jesus do now? Does he comfort them? No. Right? He, he doesn't comfort them the way they want to be comforted. Right? What is Peter looking for? Peter's like, okay, okay well, we've given up everything, so tell us now. Tell us now what we're going to get. Right? We need a little something here, Jesus. It's getting a little old. And what Jesus delivers to them is a statement about how much they're going to gain with persecutions. Oh, okay. Then they get back on the road. Jesus doesn't give them very much time. Now they're walking along, and, and what happens? Jesus starts talking about how instead of slaying the Gentiles, instead of destroying the Gentiles, he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles to be slain and destroyed himself. Now, how does this fit in to modern American Christianity? Why is Jesus making them feel so bad? Why is Jesus (laughs) challenging everything they think about themselves, about God, about faith and religion? Right? What is Jesus doing? Is Jesus willing to cause them mental, emotional, and even physical suffering in order to get them to see that the point is him? Jesus. It's not about what you get. It's not about what you give up. It's about Jesus. And he's willing to go as far as he needs to. 
And, and that actually, this is what I was talking about. That, that is a scary idea. He loves you enough to go as far as he needs to for you to understand that nothing else matters but him. I would follow him with fear and trembling as well. It's been a while since Peter has said anything. The last time Peter spoke up for the group, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, and rebuked him pretty strongly. So Peter has been off sort of on the edge of the crowd, kind of licking his wounds, tail between his legs. But now, now he sees his moment. I'm going to speak for everybody again because he told that guy to give up everything and follow Jesus, and that's what we did. Okay, guys, we're going to, in one fell swoop, I'm going to get us back on Jesus' good side. Hey, Jesus, Peter began to say to him, see, see, we, we, we've left everything and followed you. <laughs> Not like that guy. Peter is again acting as the spokesman for the twelve. Unlike the rich young ruler who refused Jesus' call, valuing his wealth above eternal life, the disciples have abandoned everything in order to follow Jesus. Now is the time for them to get their gold star. Now is for, for, for Jesus to affirm them and say, yes, A plus, you guys passed the test. There, there definitely seems to be a note of self-congratulation in this announcement, especially the fact that we have not heard much from Peter in a while. Peter's boldness on his own behalf is staggering. It reflects the erroneous thinking of the disciples, which believes that they can receive honors at Christ's side without experiencing the way of the cross. There has been, at this point, what? Right? There's been a little trouble. Jesus has gotten himself into a little bit of trouble. But nobody has thrown right, rocks at them. Nobody has, has attempted to kill them. Nobody has attempted to arrest them. And, and Peter is distracted by the fact of, what am I going to get out of this? <coughs> he wants confirmation of his own view that what he has, everything that he's given up is going to be replaced by all kinds of glorious things at Jesus' right hand as the emperor of heaven and earth. Peter, you have not even begun to comprehend how far down you're going to have to go. That's why Jesus doesn't back off. If Jesus is kind to him in, in, in a way now where he gives him very soft words, very reassuring words, it would do more harm to Peter than good. I think for parents, we, some of us understand this a little bit. Sometimes the, the poor kids, you can tell they're low, and that does give you a, a sense of compassion, but you know this is the moment to strike. And if I don't strike now, the thing, that dragon in their heart, will survive, and we can't let it happen. And that's what Jesus is doing here. They're showing him his, their weakness, and he goes after it. He doesn't back off. He goes further in. He goes on the attack. And he does it in, in Jesus' way, where it's, it's, at first it sounds great, and then when you stop and you think about what he just said, you're a little terrified. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Wow. Wow. A hundredfold? I get a hundred houses? I get a hundred wives? Wait, what? It's a little confusing. He doesn't delineate between the things. But this sounds pretty good, right? This is what Peter's like, all right, this is what I'm talking about. How do you like us now, rich young ruler? 
But Jesus goes on with persecutions. Oh, Jesus, man, you you had us. You had us, and then you lost us. And in the age to come, eternal life. Okay. That's kind of cool at the end there. But, I mean, you could have just stopped after a hundredfold, and we would have been fine. Jesus responds that the sacrifices of Peter and all, of all of his disciples in the name of Christ will be rewarded a hundredfold. Mark, among the evangelists, has the fullest text of anyone. He says, for my sake and for the gospel. See, Peter, it's not that you just gave it up. It's not that you just denied yourself something. That never leads to any benefit in God's mind. Self-denial for its own sake is meaningless. Now, if you give something up because of Christ, if you give something up because of the gospel, okay, now we're in business. Now you're entering into an exchange with God. You're entering into his economics. But all too often, Christians think self-denial and its, for its own sake is, is something that merits favor with God, and it doesn't. Okay? Now, Peter left homes, his home to follow Jesus on his ministry. Pardon me. A little Irish cold. You would think with all the whiskey you wouldn't get one, but. Peter doesn't realize that what he's given up, he's given up for the sake of the gospel. And if he hasn't given it up for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of the gospel, it gets him nowhere with God. Jesus here makes the goal of the sacrifice clear. If you're not giving it up for me, if you're not giving it up for the gospel, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The remarkable thing about the list of verse 29 is that our most essential natural network of relationships and allegiances are enumerated, right? This is, this is the basis of our lives, our what? Homes, families, and our property. Homes, families, and our properties. Without your home, without your family, without your property, what do you have in this world? Not much, not much. But all of these, Jesus is telling them, must be forsaken because of the scandalous call of Christ which takes priority over them and requires the severing of old allegiances. You can't have your old life and the new life too. You can't have your, your old gods and, and your new God. You can't have, right? In, in order for the gospel and, and for the sake of Christ, you may have to give up everything, your wife, your children, your parents, your home, all of your possessions. Now, we covered this before. Does this automatically mean when everybody here became a Christian, we all signed over the deeds of our homes, right? We let the church go in and clear out our bank accounts. We just divorced our spouses. No. The point here is that you have to be willing to give up everything. And do you think Jesus will test you? Do you think Jesus will test you whether you love him more than your spouse? Do you think he will test whether you love him more than your kids? Him more than your job? Him more than that nice neighborhood with the good schools in which you live? Yes. <laughs> yes, he will. He wants to know what are you willing to give up for him and for the sake of his gospel? Those who cut ties with their flesh and blood for the sake of Christ and his gospel will gain a hundredfold. Parents, now, I'm, I'm gonna, not everyone here has experienced the Christian faith in the same way. If you were raised in a Christian home, by Christian parents, with Christian siblings, it would be a little weird if you had to give them all up. Right? The testing for those kinds of people comes very differently. 
Because over time, right, you're like the older brother. I was always here. I never went anywhere. What are you talking about? Where's my fattened calf? And your loyalties, the loyalties of the older brother, are tested differently than the younger brother who goes out and spends all the money on whores and food and drinking and gambling. But even if you were raised in a Christian home, you understand. You understand that at times, things, right, there is this moment where you have to lay everything on the table and you've got to bet, right? You've got to bet that if I give this over to God, I'm going to get it back a hundredfold. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to put this in the Lord's hands and we're going to see what he does with it. Everybody has to come to this moment. Now, for people like myself who were converted in their mid-20s, you do at times, right? You do have to say goodbye to siblings and parents and friends and the places you like to eat and the places you like to drink and the places you like to go on the weekends because they're no longer good for you. Because they do actually, in a way, become toxic. Now, parents whose children reject them for the faith gain children in the pews next to them, in front of them, beside them, all around them. This is a remarkable thing about the Christian faith. The Lord Jesus Christ is both husband, is the husband man and the spirit is the helper. And between the two of them, everyone who comes into the family of God receives the perfect spouse. Every woman becomes your mother or your sister or your daughter. Every man, your brother or your son. You, you lose a brother because of the faith. You gain how many brothers? Any male who's called a Christian. Now, that, this is what Jesus is talking about. But for some people, how hard is it to walk away from that brother, that parent, that spouse, that job, that field? Now, in the list, fathers are not actually listed in, in, in the list of things you gain because everyone who comes to Christ gains the father. Now, that's a very important point. Everyone who comes to Christ gains the Father in heaven. Now, let's talk about this on a practical level. I have six children, five boys and a girl. <laughs> this creates all kinds of confusion. My daughter is asked, hey, how does it feel to be an only, the only daughter? She says, what are, you, what are you talking about? I got Christ sisters. People are like, what? And, and she starts listing the little girls at church, right? Starting with Acacia, always number one. And then she runs through the list of girls. And then the confused person, who usually doesn't have any idea what she's talking about, turns to me and says, so how many kids do you have? <laughs> right? She's never felt like an, the only girl in the family because of the family that we have at church. That's a very unique experience for her because she is raised in a Christian family. She never feels like she's the only girl. We may lose a family member for our faith, but remember the words of Christ in Mark chapter 3, verse 34 through 35. And looking about at those who sat around him, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. You may lose the relationship of a brother or a dear friend once the gospel sets you apart, but you gain untold numbers of relationships. Part of the bargain is that you also gain the resources of those new family members. Matthew chapter 10, verse 11 through 13. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it. Remember this? This is Jesus' instruction to the disciples. They're going to go out now, and they're going to go on mission for Jesus preaching the gospel. And he says, don't worry about taking anything with you. Because everywhere you go, 
He says, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to it. So he didn't want them to take money bags. He didn't want them to take cloaks. He didn't want them to take walking sticks. He wanted them just to go out and rely on what? The resources of their brothers and sisters, those who receive the gospel. Now, there is, now I don't know about you, but do you ever really think about your financial situation? Right? What's your backup plan? What I sometimes counsel people who are a little concerned about their backup plan is that, listen, you are a member of a church, okay? Your backup plan is the church, which pools the resources of, what, 50, well, 20, uh, 28 families. Now, does uh, do I, right? Okay, so go and do that, bet on that horse you want to bet on, right? No, that's not the advice I give people. But, but people who are worried about how they're going to be taken care of you know, when, when their husband's sick or if they have a baby or because their health insurance doesn't cover this or cover that, you can actually reassure people that they belong to a much larger family than the family that lives in their own house. Now, when I was not a Christian, there were homes in which I was accepted in as a son. There were homes I don't even have to call. I just show up, the mom's there, she makes me hot cocoa, it's great. I'm one of the kids. And that, that happened. But it's nothing like what has happened to me since I became a Christian. I have been welcomed into homes as a son, and I'd never even met the people before. They literally just left the key under the doormat, and I showed up, and I stayed there for three days. That's happened to me on more than two occasions. And, and at first, I'm like, Are the, I should actually check these people out. because <laughs> They seem a little weird. But, you know, after you become a Christian long enough, you find out this is the way it goes. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, it says something very interesting. It says that Jesus went home and the crowds followed him. But we all know that Jesus didn't have a home, right? In Matthew 8, 20, it says he has nowhere to lay his head. Well, the home that they're talking about is Peter's home. Peter's home became Jesus' home. This is the sense of community that Jesus is talking about. He wants them to understand, don't worry. The rich young ruler should have never worried about what he was giving up. Because what he was gaining was so much more. He thought he was rich then. He's much richer if he follows in the the kingdom of heaven with Jesus Christ. Did Jesus ever have to worry about where he was getting a meal? No. In fact, if he wants a donkey, he just goes and tells the guy, hey, the Lord needs it and the Lord gives it to him. Now, that wasn't a miraculous event, I don't think. I think he chose the guy wisely because the guy was the kind of guy who would be like, oh, you need my donkey, let me give you my donkey. Just like people I know where it's like I get a little bit of car trouble and I tell them about it and the next thing they want to do is deliver a car to my house. Like, oh, you want me to bring my car over for you? I just need to get the oil changed, but I appreciate that. (laughs) Because people, the generosity of, 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 of Christians is such that coming into the household of God should never, that's right, worrying about resources, worrying about relationships, worrying about loneliness, worrying about that kind of thing should never be a stumbling block for people. And it often is. Right? We, sometimes evangelism is, is, is focused on personal relationship with Jesus, and what we sometimes miss is reassuring the person that, listen, you, you do need to come out of the darkness and into the light, and when you come into the light, what you're going to find is a huge family that loves you. And, and I don't think we do as good a job as we should expressing this to people. And it's something that I think we should think about as a community. I want to join that community because nobody ever seems to go without. They go on vacation, people watch their kids. They have a baby, this is the one that blows my neighbor's minds. 
we have a baby and all these all this food comes over to our house. Like who is how many family members do you have living in this? Well, the church has about 25 families. So we got a lot of family living in the in the area. I mean, the last one is my my kids. Well, how many grand, you know, how many of your grandparents are still alive? Well, we got about eight sets of grandparents. How many times did your parents get married? They asked me. <laughs> Eight sets of grandparents. They really think that, that they do. In fact, there, there's been a couple of kids who were actually confused about who their real grandparents were. That, that's, that has caused two awkward family events. Oh, you're my actual grandparents. <laughs> See, authentic acts of obedience and discipleship are like the five loaves and the two fish. Right? In God's household, we never have to worry about where the food's coming from. We never have to worry about unconditional love. Now, are you known as a person who is generous in that way, both with what you own and and relationally? I think we have a lot to learn there about this. And evangelism should be more about this than, than simply your relationship with Jesus. Now, I spent a lot of time on that. It's important. And I've left this, the dicey one. Because he says all this beautiful stuff. And then he says, with persecutions. Oh, okay. So I gain a family that's, you know, the size of the world. And I'm going to get persecuted now. That sounds awesome, Jesus. Thank you. Because all too often we talk about Christian discipleship the cost of discipleship as if it's all up front. As if you come into the church and you empty your pockets, right? You give everything up, you leave the dark world to come into this world, and that's all it costs you. But anyone who's been a Christian for longer than three days understands that the cost is not all up front. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What does that mean? Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's different. And the people who are living out their faith in the kingdom of God live differently. You don't, right? You see a boy, doesn't matter how long he's grown his hair, it doesn't matter about what medication he's taking, it's a boy. I I mean, I'm actually, I'm going to say this as a pastor. We're living in good times because it's been a little too easy to be a Christian for quite a while in this country. And let me tell you right now, you go... Right? There's a Christian professor who just lost her job because she refused to use the correct pronouns. Right? <laughs> Obergefell or whatever that the case just four years ago, where they allowed gay marriage. They're like, don't worry, we're not we're not shoving anything down your throats. We're not like you people. 
and now we're losing our jobs because we won't use the correct pronouns. It's a good time to be a Christian because now, now, we can go out and it, right? It's not, it wasn't all a down payment. You can prove it on a daily basis around here. If, if you are suffering because of Christ, because of the gospel, which is truth, then, then it, all it validates is that you are the true son of God. Because what, what did Christ endure? Did he suffer much? Did, did he go around saying things that startled people and, 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 and caused persecution in his life? So it's not, all, it's not just about what you gain, but it's about what you continually have to lay down. Because I'm, I'm like, you meet this person at work, say, and the relationship's going great. Then they find out you're a Christian. Then they ask the one question that everyone who's not a Christian asks the Christian the first time they find out they're a Christian. So gay people should go to hell. And we all know that it costs something at that moment. Right? That's not just like an apologetics theoretical thing. We, we run into this stuff. Right? That why, why, why are all your... Wow, is, is school not on today? This is what I just was asked the other day. I have all the kids at the store and they're like, oh, is it a holiday? I didn't know it was a holiday. Oh, no, we homeschool. Then it was like... The, then very quickly, oh... Well, yeah, do you, do you still do, like... They started asking me questions, like, testing me. Oh, do you still do, like, state-certified, like... I said, kids, get in the car. <laughs> it's like, I am not going to stand here and answer questions to you. It's time to go. And now that person, you can see them. And when I go to the grocery store, they're always like... To believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, to believe that the, right, the Bible says the world was created in six days by God. You go, right? How does that work out? That climate change is a hoax. Try saying that to your neighbor, right? I have a dear friend, and it's like he's going off on Facebook, and it's all I can do to be like, it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Right? And, and, and the people who don't know Jesus are terrified. They're terrified of clouds. Right? They're terrified of rain clouds. They're terrified of ice. That's sad. That's sad to me. And, and we can make jokes, but, you know, and we don't want to say anything because we don't want to offend anybody. We don't want to be persecuted in any way. And persecution for us at this point is just somebody not liking us very much. For most of us. Oh, my neighbor doesn't talk to him anymore. The mailbox is about as persecuted as we get in this country. And what I think we all need is a great deal more of that. Right? That's a kind of evangelism we don't usually decide on. But let's just speak the truth and let's not play their game and let's not call black, white, and white, black. Let's not do it. Let's not play that game. Let's just trigger some people. Let's trigger them. Then maybe what we can do is we get into it. Maybe, right? At least we're stirring the pot. At least we're actually talking about things. Like, you know how tired... There, there was at one point I, I was working at fire pension and this guy came in and, and, and something happened where he thought that I was like a, a Hillary Clinton supporter and I didn't want to be rude and I didn't correct him and that caused so much pain in my life for three years because then he thought we were on the same team and it went on and on and on I didn't want to be rude to the guy so every time he came in we're like oh man here we go Hillary's great <laughs> 
And, you know, and it was a small thing. And I could have easily corrected it at any time. But you know what I didn't want to do is offend that old guy. And what, right? So I go on, in a sense, living a lie. And, and this is what happens to us because we don't want to offend people. So I'm actually going <coughs> to skip over because I'm running out of time. Mark 10, 31. I think at this point, I didn't really have much to say about it, but this is what it says. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, I think we all understand that, right? Uh, this is Doug Wilson. He did this. I love it. This is exa- my example. He, he preached a sermon on this, and he said, okay, everybody line up to leave, and everybody lines up to go out the door, and he comes and he opens the door over here. Right? Because we easily forget we easily forget this one. But this is what this whole thing has been about. The, the rich young ruler was first and he didn't want to be last. And and here Peter is, he's you know, he's done a lot of work to be last, but he's still awful worried about being first. And and that's what this whole section has been about. And and then what we have is Jesus. Right? What we have is Jesus who doesn't care who he offends. He doesn't right, and he's a real gentleman. A real gentleman never offends anyone on accident. That's the definition of a gentleman. You never offend someone on accident. You always do it, right, for a reason. And Jesus is the consummate gentleman. So we go down to chapter 10, verse 32, and this is what it says. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed him were afraid. And, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was happening to him. Now, now, this is what I find fascinating about this. This is a very difficult thing to understand. He, he's talked to them, and now they're on this road. Right? And they are, in fact, going up to Jerusalem because it's actually a long climb. Jerusalem's um, it's a, it's a mountain. And so if you're traveling from where they are to where they're going in Jerusalem, it's actually quite an elevation climb. So they are, in fact, going up to Jerusalem. This is why the ascent psalms are the ascent psalms, because when you're entering into Jerusalem, you're actually going up to the temple. But what are they afraid of? There's Jesus out ahead of them, and he's marching along. Follow me, guys. And they're terrified. He hasn't said anything to them. What are they afraid of? He hasn't yet told them what's going to happen to him again, right? He's told them several times that they didn't understand it. What is it they're afraid of? And, and I think what they're afraid of is what our, our, our modern culture calls toxic masculinity. Jesus' toxic masculinity is all over the place here. He's out ahead of us, and he has a purpose and he doesn't really seem to care who he offends. And he doesn't really, he has a purpose. He's going to go do it. And he doesn't care. Come with me or don't come with me. And, and what he's doing is, right? What is masculinity? What is it really? It, it, it's the, the glad sacrifice of bodily strength for the good of others. That's what a man is, right? A masculine man is a man who sacrifices his bodily strength for the good of others. And what is Jesus about? What is his mission? What is he going to deliver? And and I actually think, in one sense, what they're afraid of is is that they're afraid. I, I mean, I don't. It's unlike what we normally see in men. I don't want to call it mojo. I don't even want to call it swagger because it's neither of those things. He is about the work of the Lord. He is unafraid. Now, the only time I've seen examples of what I think is going on here is 
in wars, right? Uh, if you've ever seen Band of Brothers, there's that scene, like episode seven, where there's a captain who, they're in the middle of a battle, and there's troops are split up and this captain has to get over here and give these guys a message and some sergeant says oh I'll go and he says no I'll do it myself and they think he's going to go around the back right and go get them but what he does is he jumps up and he runs right through the middle of town this is an American and there's all these Germans with tanks and guns and this captain just comes running right down the middle of the street and the people who were standing there said no one shot at him because they couldn't believe what they were seeing Right? For a moment, they were almost afraid to shoot at him, which is actually something. There, there was a, a British soldier who turned his gun at, at Washington and closed his eyes because he was just actually a little afraid to shoot him. And, and because it's just, there's so much, I don't know what to call it, masculinity in a way that's hard to define. I, I, there's another story about my father this way. He was a, he was a policeman, he was a notorious door kicker. That man never met a door he could not kick to pieces. <laughs> so he became a sergeant, and he's got these four guys at this, at this house, and they're there to check on this, this guy who's a bit of a wacko. And the wacko's inside, and you can hear him like locking the door, right? And it's like... <laughs> and he's in there screaming. And so they bring this big ex-marine, and he starts kicking this door as hard as he can. And he's getting nowhere. And these four cops are standing there, and they don't know what to do. So they're calling their sergeant, who is my father. Sergeant's like, get the door open. We cannot let this become like a thing with the news and the SWAT team. Just get in there and get the guy. So they're kicking the door and kicking the door and kicking the door. So my father's car pulls up with the lights on. He gets out of the car, and he walks up. And in one kick, he pops this thing off of the frame of the door, and it falls on the guy inside, and, every, and he goes silent. <laughs> And, and I have heard this story from the guys who were there. And they said the four of them just stood there with, like they didn't even know what to do. And Dad goes, <laughs> and then he walks back to his car, gets in, and drives away. <laughs> and, and, and these are metaphors. But, but I think at this point, Jesus is so confident in his father. He is so confident in his purpose. He is so confident that they're going to win. He is so confident in what is right and true and good. He is walking out ahead of them, and it scares them. And this is what he wants Christian men to be like. Christian men who care more about truth, more about goodness, more about beauty, more about sacrificing bodily strength for the good of others, that it scares people a little bit. Now, I don't mean like, okay, the way when we lose our temper in an earthly way and everybody gets a little frightened, because that happens, right? A grown man get, getting, losing his temper is a little frightening. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about men who are so dedicated and so confident in the grace of God that they are out in front leading in such a way that it is a little scary. This is what Jesus is doing. This is what he wants Peter, right? What is Peter and all of these disciples going to go on and do later once they have the Holy Spirit? This is exactly the kind of leadership they're going to display. They're going to stand up in the middle, excuse me, they're going to stand up in the middle of the temple. Peter is. And he's going to preach in a way where he doesn't care who stones him. And when they finally come to the point where they're going to crucify him, he says, I'm not worthy of being crucified because Jesus was, so crucify me upside down. Peter comes to the point where he is doing exactly what Jesus is doing here. And, and, and this is what God the Father and Jesus Christ wants Christian men to be like.
He wants us to lead like this. And, and what does it require of us to lead in this way? What does, it re- what does it require of us? To have secret sins? Can, can you lead like this when you have secret sins? Can you lead like this when you're abdicating to your wife? Can you lead like this when you're sitting on your kids so they can't stand up for themselves? No. If you have unrepentant sin, you are not going to lead like this. When we look around in the world, what's missing is this. This is what's missing. This is what's missing in our churches. This is what's missing in our homes. This is what's missing in culture. Our men who are confident in the word of God, confident in truth, beauty, and goodness, and who are going about their business, and they don't care what it costs them. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. He doesn't care what the Pharisees think. He doesn't care what the Gentiles think. He doesn't care who dislikes him. He doesn't care if, if what he says offends anybody. He's going to do what he's called to do, and he's going to do it now, and he's not going to put it off. And what is it that he's going to do? <laughs> what is it that he's going to do? Mark chapter 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Let's go. Let's go. Right? And there's Peter like, um, I mean, we could just camp here for a while. I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. We could just wait. Do we have to go now? Men, you, you have little kids in your home, and that is a that is a timed event with eternal consequences. Why are you just sitting on the couch? There's your wife working her tail off, and there you are watching golf. Right? There's the Netflix, there's the Bible. Eh, I need some Netflix. I need a little me time. Jesus has something to deliver in Jerusalem, right? And, and, and he's more consistent than Amazon Prime. He is going to deliver exactly when he is supposed to deliver it, right? and nothing is going to stop him. And he doesn't want to put it off. And he wants them to come with him because he understands this, this is why God, Adam was put into a garden. Adam was put in, right? Adam was put in the garden in this wild world that was empty, of people, empty of culture, empty of civilization, right? And think of the mission that Adam was put on, given, in the very beginning. But he abdicated, and we all know the story. But here's Jesus. He's put into a garden, and it's a garden full of fallen man, full of all of our sin and all of our wickedness, right? He's not even starting with a clean world like Adam did. He's starting with a world that's corrupt. And Jesus says, I don't care what it costs me. I have my life to deliver over to the Father. Let's get working. Let's get going. Follow me. That is a man who leads his church well. That is a man who leads his family well. That is a man who leads the the co-op well, the school well, the business well. Not playing politics. Not abdicating. Not playing games, right? Not lingering in the back to see what's going to happen. This word delivered over, right? He's gonna, Jesus is going to go up, 
and he's going to be delivered over to the leaders of Israel, who are in turn going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. He's ready. He's ready to do it now. He's not holding back. But when he calls on us, he says, listen, deliver over everything that you own. Get rid of it. Set it aside. Deliver it over to me. And what you will gain, right? what I will deliver, because I am the Savior of this world, because I am the Lord and the King of this world, what I will deliver over to you in return is greater than you could possibly imagine. But persecutions, Jesus. Yes, persecutions. Yes, kind of like a spear in your side. Kind of like a crown of thorns. I get it. I understand. But it's the only way to receive the name above every other name. The cross is the only way to the crown. Delivering over myself to these wicked and evil people is the only way to save you. This strength that God gave me the only purpose I have for it is to sacrifice it for others. Now, that's a motto that we should make T-shirts out of and not just wear them, but live it. Right, men? How, different, how much different would our culture be, our families be, this church be, your businesses be, if we were living like that? I was given this strength, this life, this breath, this mind to deliver it over. Now, this story, right? We're, we're not standing on the road with Jesus. We're not standing there with Peter, terrified, confused, having to be forced. We know what happens, right? Jesus went up to Jerusalem, didn't he? And he delivered his package. He delivered it on time, in full. And what happened? Oh, they took it. They took it from him with relish. And what did God the Father do? Well, he delivered him from that tomb. He delivered into his hands the crown of the heavens and the earth. He delivered over to him the name and the authority above every name and authority in this world. Right? We have something here that the disciples didn't have. We have the Spirit of God, and we know the end of the story. The difficult thing for us to do is to take this knowledge now and go into the world and live like it's true. We know what happened. We know what Jesus did. We know what the Father did. So now, when we open this up and it says, deliver over everything to me, we know that we can because he delivered big. He delivered everything that we could possibly hope for. He delivered everything that we possibly could need in himself. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. He is the one who, who lived the perfect life of a man. And, and what, we need, what we need is to both understand how he did that and imitate him in doing it. Our wives need it. Our, our children need it. Our schools need it. Our church needs it. Our community needs it. What are you prepared to deliver over to him? Right? We know what he's willing to deliver over to us. What's holding you back? Father, we thank you so much for your word of truth, the word that divides bone and marrow, muscle and ligament. We know, Lord God, that you are working on us, that you are 
pursuing us, Lord, that you are leading us, that you are working on our hearts and minds continuously, that we may not only understand your Son better, but that we might live like him and love him and worship him and serve him in the same spirit that he served you. We pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would be men that lead, that we would have this almost undescribable masculinity that Jesus had, and that we would not waste it, but that we would deliver it up to you, Lord God. And we pray for our wives and for our children and for this culture, that that the light would shine through us. And that truth, beauty, and goodness, Lord, would be restored not only to us, but to this church, to our homes, and to this land. And amen.